Hello, welcome back to Myelopathy Matters, the official podcast of the charity myelopathy.org, where we talk all things degenerative cervical myelopathy from the perspective of the professionals, the researchers, and the people living with myelopathy. My name is Ben Davies, neurosurgeon, scientist, and founder of myelopathy.org. I'm joined today by Ewan Sadler, a person with DCM, and of course, another founder of myelopathy.org. Hello, Ewan. Hello there, Ben, and a happy new year to you. So coming up today, we're talking about the impact a diagnosis of DCM can have on your personal finances. We'll hear from Shirley Widdop, former nurse, disabled by DCM, and now campaigning on this subject. This is Myelopathy Matters by myelopathy.org. So welcome to Myelopathy Matters. Of course, uh, sadly, Michelle Starkey has transitioned out of the charity, gone back to to teaching and hopefully bringing on the next generation of scientists that can really help get behind myelopathy. Uh, And therefore, I'm joined today by one of the co-founders of myelopathy.org, Ewan Sadler. Hello, Ewan. Hi there, Ben. Yeah, and I wish uh, Michelle all the very best in um, the teaching opportunities. And like you said, the scientists of tomorrow will benefit from her teachings. Absolutely. Um, but back to today's podcast, we're, we're focusing on a topic uh, of poverty. And I think um, this is a really important topic. And I was really pleased to see that it emerged as one of the research priorities in the AOSpine Recode DCM process. What are your perspectives on this subject, Ewan? Like you said, it's great to see it up there in the top 10. Um, when you were diagnosed with a chronic condition like myelopathy, you don't instantly take into consideration the financial implications of your newly di- diagnosed condition. But I think it's it's clear from the, the support community that it is something that, that comes up quite often uh, amongst people living with DCM. Yes, it's uh, it's, dis- it's discussed on a, on a regular basis. I know uh, disability benefits section on the website is one of the most visited pages, I think. As a person with myelopathy who had to go through the whole uh, procedure of claiming disability, it is and it can be a very daunting and long process, which can mount to a lot of extra stress to deal with on top of sort of coming to terms with uh, your diagnosis of myelopathy as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're going to hear today from Shirley Widdop, who's also somebody who who had to go through that process, transitioning from a you know working NHS nurse into somebody in poverty, fighting for her her benefits. What's Shirley been like as part of the myelopathy.org support team? It's been an absolute pleasure to work with Shirley for the last few years, and as you know, she's a prominent part of the Facebook support group. Um, she's always the first one to welcome every member into the group and she's also passionate for the cause as well and when she gets the bit between the teeth uh, she really goes for it. And I think that is something that's that's really clear in her interview because alongside volunteering with with myelopi.org you know she's faced that adversity of, uh, of the benefit system and, and really turned that into an area of action for herself really campaigning for poverty now across a number of different areas in the UK and that's the first question I put to her. I started by asking her why she'd become so involved in campaigning about poverty. I consider myself actually an accidental activist. It was purely by chance. I'm guilty of thinking once upon a time that poverty was a personal failing until it actually happened to me. And I've since discovered that um, absolutely anybody, regardless of their circumstances, can be plunged into poverty. I've 
been disabled with uh, degenerative cervical myelopathy, as you know, since 2011. And although I did try and work in um, a part-time job at the time because I had three children, so uh, jiggling work hours was a bit difficult, um, I did try to go back to work and I just found it totally impossible. So um, I ended up claiming benefits. But for the activism itself, the trigger for me was um, it actually happened in 2013. And uh, it was Christmas time and I received a letter because I'd been invited to apply for PIP, um, which is Personal Independence Payment. It's one of the um, social security benefits we have here in the UK. And I'd received zero points, um, even though previously when I was on disability living allowance from which I'd had to transfer, um, I'd, I'd actually ended up on standard care and high rate mobility. But in the transfer over to the new system, I, I I received zero points. This meant that I lost my motability car, which I'd had for nearly three years at that point. And I also lost things like my blue badge. I was then liable to pay council tax. Um, I was liable to pay rent as well, because up till that point, because I'd been in receipt of DLA, I was um, actually in receipt of housing benefit. And I was just absolutely fed up. I was just sick to death of it. And it meant for me that I actually had to go to a third tribunal in as many years to actually win back the disability benefits to which I had been entitled to. The trouble being, though, I still actually lost my motability car. So for me, being a disabled person, to lose that lifeline uh, was devastating because I, I really needed it to become independent. So presumably when that came through at Christmas, that information, you had to transition from a new system and you had to fight your case. There must have been a period of time where you were suddenly not receiving so much money and perhaps accumulating debt as you're trying to get back the, the support that you've been receiving. Absolutely. And this is where you come to learn that poverty can happen due to circumstances beyond your control yes because obviously if I'm having to pay council tax and housing benefit I'm having to I had to go into debt to uh, buy the motability car um, back from motability operations that's the the charity that runs the motability scheme also service it repair it all those things that had been previously taken care of it just put me into a massive debt spiral, which was very difficult to pull out of. So would you say that perhaps having to sort of fight your case and just get back what you had cost more money than for you than simply receiving what you were having before? That makes perfect sense. Not only the cost to me, but the cost to the public purse. So that phrase you use, accidental activist, what, what do you mean by that? At that point, when I actually lost my entitlement to personal independence payment, that didn't trigger me straight away. I actually launched into poetry at that point, some quite angry poems coming through uh, in my journal that I kept at the time. The first foray into activism, though, happened quite by accident. And this is why I, I say accidental activist. Again, as part of the general feeling of um, being fed up, um, there was a survey online for Gingerbread, which was the lone parent charity, and it was talking about credit card debt and things like that. And this is something that I've experienced. 
So I clicked on the link, as you do, and I filled in the survey and thought no more of it. And then I actually got contacted by Gingerbread and was asked to go and give evidence at the APPG on poverty, the APPG being the all-party parliamentary group. Um, They met in Westminster in July of 2018. So I thought, okay, I'll do that because I was feeling pretty fed up with the grand scheme of things. So it involved a very hectic trip down to London one day to go to Westminster, give evidence, and then straight back home on the train. Um, That was an amazing experience. But sadly, what I've found is that um, things haven't changed very much for people in the interim because I've I've recently given evidence yet again, but this time obviously because of the COVID pandemic via Zoom, to the APPG on poverty the other week. So let's pick up on that again, because I know that that's helped resurface a lot of this, um, particularly in the work that you're doing and also through the various media, has been these reports from the Joseph Roundtree Foundation, of course, looking at the situation of COVID-19. What is the situation of, of, of poverty in a developed country like the United Kingdom at the moment? Well, the fact is that poverty exists. I know people often think of poverty only existing in developing countries like nations in Africa, for example. And that's true. It's obviously very desperate out there. That's what we call absolute poverty. But we also have something called relative poverty. So there are people on the very bottom rung of the ladder that are basically destitute and we do have destitution this is why we have people sleeping on the streets because they have absolutely nothing what what in in this in the uk for example then relative poverty what what are the key drivers behind that as i've previously spoken about i i'm actually involved with the joseph roundtree foundation And from their recent report, um, which actually came out only the other week, they found that the key drivers of poverty are wage stagnation, insecure low-paid work, such as zero-hours contracts particularly, benefits freezes, which is a big issue for people with degenerative cervical myelopathy. If you can manage to get into the social security system, they've found that the benefits aren't sufficient to, to cover your needs. There's issues, for example, with changes to child benefits, which originally every child in the country, no matter what your background, what your income, everybody got. But now it's been limited to two children it's, and it's been limited to people under £50,000 a year earnings. And big, massive change has been the change from the older legacy benefit system to the newer universal credit system. And what's happening there is that people are actually having to wait five weeks for their first payment under that system. That's because the idea of universal credit was to try and uh, reflect real life where people get paid wages monthly. And that's fair enough. But you find that people on really low incomes do not have that cash reserve to get them through those five weeks. So they are able to take an advance payment, but then that leads to more debt spirals because they're having to pay back the debt that they've incurred to survive the first five weeks. And that then pushes them into poverty later on down the line. 
So, so bringing this a little bit back to myelopathy and perhaps bringing you in on this as well, What I guess there's two scenarios a little bit here, isn't there? There's the scenario perhaps where you're already in that very difficult position and perhaps the one that you're thrust even further into that position because of um, a condition like myelopathy. But what potentially is the impact on, on living with myelopathy and, and managing it and perhaps even recovering from it if you're faced with this situation of, of, of poverty? A typical example for me is I'm at home all day more or less. So I need to keep the house warm. And um, because if I don't, if I get cold, it's like, it's like, it's like Wally, you know, the cartoon character when, when his uh, solar battery runs out, he shuts down for the night. I actually literally shut down. I get cold. I get very fatigued and I have to go to bed to warm up again. I need to keep the warm at a constant temperature and this happens even in summer. So just having the heating on at um, a relatively reasonable temperature, I don't go mad, I only go to 21 degrees, but I need it to keep it at that constant temperature, otherwise I actually feel worse. Yeah, I think it's it's quite a difficult transition from actually being able to work and then finding yourself in the benefit system. It's not the easiest route to actually set upon because to really know the systems, you've got to dwell in deep. Um, because w- when I went from uh, full-time work to claiming uh, for disability, I think I had to wait about six or seven months because basically I didn't know how, know how the system worked and uh, they stopped my ESA. So it's really difficult and even today I'm, I'm you know going back six years when I had to do it initially nothing's been put in place to actually make it any easier for anybody to claim anything. No it sounds incredibly difficult and there's long transition points where you're accumulating debt and problems whilst you're trying to resolve the situation uh, perhaps with with not so much help and, and, and support. But how specifically do you think you and it can interact with your own myelopathy in your care you know, did it interfere with how you were able to rehabilitate or get back to doing things or yes anything to do with healing i think you've got to have the right frame of mind to do it and i think the stress of sort of jumping through the hoops and getting the right benefits knowing what you're able to claim for is very very difficult and it gives and it's you know it's a lot of pressure as a, as a family as well to sort of lose one person's wages and trying to gather everything together and sort of deal with your newly found diagnosis of myelopathy as well. Yes, going back to what Ewan was saying about the time it took to actually get the claims through, in terms of going to tribunal to win back the benefits to which I was entitled, for employment support allowance, it took six months to get to tribunal. For disability living allowance, it took six months to get to tribunal. But when it came to actually challenging the uh, personal independence payment decision, it took a year to get to tribunal. So as you can imagine, as Ewan's alluded to already, the amount of stress you're already under with that on top is exacerbated hugely. And I've got a, a history of depression both postnatal and reactive so this is absolutely monumental 
And did you anticipate both that this was going to, going to be required as you were coming up with that diagnosis and managing perhaps the beginning phase of myelopathy? Or is it something that you suddenly got to realization, I can't go back to work, I suddenly need this, where do I turn, what are the resources, what's out there, how can I get help? It plays a big part because the further you look into it and when you send away for the forms to actually take the right route, the forms need so much sort of care and attention and you need to sort of put everything in there. I think I took two attempts before they would give me my ESA and my PIP and I had to take it to tribunal as well. And a lot of it is to do with... The awareness side of myelopathy, because the better awareness we have of myelopathy yeah, across the spectrum, hopefully be easier to people to actually claim as well. Because going back six years, you were talking to uh, our doctors about myelopathy, and even the doctor didn't have a, a good grasp of what it actually meant. So we didn't expect you know, the people that we see in the health assessors that you have to go through to claim your ESA to claim your PIP, what sort of chance did they know that they would know a little bit more than your doctor? So, it, yeah, it's it's hard work. It's, you know, it's a difficult thing to deal with on top of your diagnosis as well. So what you're alluding to there is that perhaps certain conditions have a better recognition, a better association with requiring support. Yes, definitely. Uh, as example, most neurone disease and myelopathy doesn't or didn't have that. And that was a great challenge for you. Yes, if you go in with MS, I think MS is a sort of, every household sort of knows what MS is, even though that they haven't got a sort of relative with MS. It's the awareness side of things has been done so well that they can understand the condition. It's the understanding the condition and what the limitations of the condition, of the condition bring to that person as well. So which deems them in you know the brackets of, you know, how disabled are you? What can't you do? What can you do? And as we know with myelopathy, you know, not every day is the same. So you could be you could have a good day and then all of a sudden the next day you could be having a really bad day or maybe three bad days. Mm-hmm. Obviously that could affect the, the assessment that you go through, I suppose. Obviously that's what we as a group try and campaign for. As regards the Department of Work and Pensions viewpoint on any disability, it's not so much the name of the disability itself, but how that condition affects your ability to perform your daily activities of living. And they tend to focus on whether you can perform a given task, whether that's washing and dressing, eating and drinking, mobilising. What they're actually interested in is not the name of your condition, but whether that condition affects your ability to do it safely, reliably, repeatedly and in a reasonable time scale compared to somebody without such condition. And those are the key phrases that we need to get across to the medical professionals to actually put in their letters because that would give us so much more evidence that is more compelling to present to um, the DWP. And also, I'd like to pick up on the point that um, Ewan mentioned the fact that myelopathy as a condition, it can fluctuate. I found myself that it actually not only fluctuates from day to day, but it actually fluctuates from minute to minute, hour to hour. Because I made a joke once, I can 
stand up from a chair and I might trip over the next step I take. And that's exactly what I did in front of my neurosurgical consultant when he assessed me for surgery this time. And we were just talking about it and I went flying through a door and he had to grab me so I didn't fall over. Not that he should have tried to stop me falling because that's a no-no, but he still did. And that's how ridiculous myelopathy can be. We had a good laugh about it, but I could have really injured myself. You know, it's it's crazy sometimes. It's There's no rhyme or reason with it. I guess, Shirley, you and you both alluded to needing to turn to that um, state support for living uh, as a result of of being affected by myelopathy what were the sort of services that you had to access the the paperwork the terminology that people need to be familiar if they're in a similar position we in the uk are very fortunate that we have a welfare system it might not be ideal there's a lot of problems with it the assessments may not be fair valid and reliable but we've got it there's been so many changes to the welfare system in the uk there's a bit of a hodgepodge of things going on I'm a person that's on legacy benefits. However, if I was coming into this system new, I would have to make an application for universal credit. And that is the main welfare benefit payable to new claimants in the UK. And how would someone go about that? Most of it, you go to the um, gov.uk website and search for it on there. Some of the forms you can actually complete online and there are people that can actually help you with your claim. In the main part, it's actually going to be the Citizens Advice Bureau. They are usually the people to go to. However, with the number of claims and claimants increasing, especially with the pandemic at the moment, they might not always have somebody available. So there are other facilities that are available where you can go. Um, I found previously for my PIP tribunal, the Aspire Spinal Injuries Charity was very useful. They helped me complete my form and complete my evidence for the tribunal. You could always check out the benefits advisors on the Spinal Injuries Association. There's also the Disability Rights UK charity they actually provide a disability rights handbook, which I buy every year in case I need to make any claims. And that has all the information you need to help you complete your claim forms. But even that is still quite difficult to navigate. So I would always recommend you get help. And there's another website as well, which I've always found useful and I'm a member of. Is It's the Benefits and Work website. And again, it's about £15 a year to join. And there you can get downloadable fact sheets and helps for, for example, if you were refused and what to do next. I would definitely recommend getting help to actually fill out all the forms. It's a bit of a minefield out there. When And the more information that you can actually give them, like Shirley said, it's your better chances of succeeding for PIP and for ESA and universal credit sort of thing so yeah definitely that would be my number one tip is to actually go and have some advice and get some help to fill in all all the forms because it sounds like it's without any application that there are certainly key words or key things they're looking for in, in those forms that need to be written perhaps in a certain way to really get that recognition yes definitely i can remember filling in my form and then taking it to the the people who were going to fill in my second form, and they 
the key information that they needed was uh, how far can you walk and so on. I think I forgot to put down that, you know, my my symptoms vary from day to day, from, you know, from the morning to the afternoon and so on. So I sort of left out a lot of the key information that they actually needed. But these people, you know, they fill in forms daily and they know exactly the correct information that is required to apply and be successful for your, um, you know, your PIP, your universe credit, your ESA. Sometimes people panic when they've got this form to do because you normally have 28 days to do it. And you think, oh, evidence, how am I going to get the evidence? Now, ideally, the DWP are supposed to contact your doctors, whoever you put down as people that are best suited to discuss your case. But that, as I found from bitter experience, doesn't always happen. So I actually send in um, quite weighty documents of evidence. So, for example, x-ray reports. You are now allowed to ask for your x-ray images on CD-ROM. Similarly, with MRI scans, MRI reports, you can actually request your entire medical records from the appropriate office at your treating hospital. I can't stress that enough. Now, as I've already said, you get 28 days to do the form. Send the form in anyway. You can always add and send in evidence after after you've sent your form in. So please don't be put off by the fact that you think, oh, I can't get my evidence in time. Send the form anyway. Get it completed. That's the priority. Then if you need to send any additional evidence, send it in. Always make sure it's a copy, though, not the original. And the other thing is that I found, even though they supply you with a free post envelope, Always, always, always send your stuff by recorded post because there are cases of things going missing. What comes across in listening to you both is what a minefield this is and the implications it can have on you. As a healthcare professional, what is it that that we need to do more of or or do better to to assist people with myelopathy as as they go through this process? It would be ideal if you had medical social workers, for example, that you could go to or send people to to help with the claim. They could help the people with the forms because obviously that's not your remit, but they could make you aware of what you need to be writing in your clinic letters. So the fact that we need to have things like cannot walk more than 20 metres due to myelopathy because it causes pain, fatigue, and they are at risk of falls with every step. Just something as simple as that would ensure that people with myelopathy would qualify for extra help with mobility costs. So obviously we've heard from a very UK-based perspective and and the offer, and myelopathy does reach, myelopathy.org in particular, reaches cross, cross borders, particularly into North America. What is the situation like for the community over there? Are they finding a different experience, different opportunities, different challenges? I've found that they're actually having similar difficulties to us. Um, From the research that we've done with the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, I know that in the UK that there's 14 million people in poverty. Um, Four million of those are children. Four million of those are actually in uh, working households. And seven million households are headed by someone with a disability or have someone 
living within that household with a disability. Now, the current poverty rate that I saw for the USA the other week was 18 million people are living in poverty. So I would suspect their breakdown of the figures is something similar to ours. We are fortunate that we have had someone put together a a guide to the US Disability Benefits Service on the actual website. It, uh, it, It is there if you go look for it. And that helps people with claims for, I think they call it SSID out there. The one message that seems to come across in group for people in the US is to actually get a disability lawyer that specialises in that subject because they've found that they tend to be more successful in their claims. Brilliant. And that information is on the website myelopathy.org? Yes. Yes, it's there. It's just, it's not just us. Everybody's, everybody's struggling. That's all I can say, really. COVID is no respecter of your financial position. But what I do know is that COVID is exacerbating levels of poverty already. And the people that are new to the system, because they've, for example, contracted COVID and are now having problems with long COVID symptoms, um, it's going to put a lot more pressure on the system. And I think with so many people applying as well, it's going to slow down the system of people having the payments as well. So it's going to delay all payments that are coming through. So it's like a total domino effect then, isn't it? So it needs to be made to function well so that everybody can be supported, which is the hallmark of a compassionate society. So it's always great to hear from Shirley, really inspiring. I think you alluded to this in your um, introduction, Ewan. You know, she's faced significant adversity, but she's not been brought down by it. She's really turned that into a motivation, set her goals on trying to change the situation, really becoming a national ambassador. I know she's been on BBC television, BBC radio, national newspapers. It's, um, it's, it's a great, great achievement, I think. Um, listening to her interview, one of the things that comes across to me as a somebody quite outside this process is what an absolute minefield it is to navigate and also the potential costs of actually getting through the system. You know, the delays in receiving um, support or perhaps the, the payments you might have to make in order to be able to you know, go to tribunal or access assistance or that, that, that um, pamphlet she mentioned that she pays a, a fee for to receive each year to make sure that she's claiming the, de- the benefits correctly. Yes, definitely. And just it puts into perspective as well, how much is this costing the government to go through the the tribunal sort of process? It could be six months for someone to have no income. And that just puts uh, a complete stress on not just you, but, you know, family members as well. It's not a good place to be in if you've just been newly diagnosed and you want to in the right frame of mind to tackle the things ahead which are your surgery your recovery and so on so it, it really p- pays a big part in the, you know your, your mental health really and how do you think myelopathy.org can support people in such a situation i think by giving uh, the right help and support out there the problem we got at the moment is as the group is getting larger we get in we are having Um, sort of members from all around the country and to sort of pinpoint what sort of benefits that they can actually go for is quite hard. At the moment, 
like we said in the, in the interview, that we've got the benefit system for the UK and America, and hopefully we can sort of add on to that. And I think you pick up in the interview as well, there's that sort of granular signposting, isn't there? But there's also that greater issue of perhaps awareness and, and, and really understanding this as an issue. Yeah, it's we've got we've really got to push the awareness side of myelopathy to get it recognised as a disability because of the different levels of disability for people with myelopathy. Like we see in the group, all the symptoms are varied. You've got some people with slight symptoms from the start, and then you've got the people that have difficulty walking and so on. Um, I think that the varied problem is a sort of obstacle that we need to put across so that the health professionals that are doing these tests for your benefits so that they know a lot more about myelopathy as well. We discussed about MS. You know, every household sort of knows knows what MS is, even though they haven't got a, a family member with MS. And we sort of need that awareness to follow as well with myelopathies to, to get it up there with you know, MS, breast cancer, and so on. Yeah, I, th- I think that was a take-home message for me. It's it's critically that awareness part, isn't it, both of the condition, but also what needs to be talked about, what needs to be said in those letters to assist people looking for benefits. We have this expression in, in, in medicine is that, you know, you see what you look for and you look for what you know. And I think the problem is that, you know, as a healthcare professional, we're just not trained in this area. And we haven't really been aware of or even looked to measure the financial implications of, of this condition in such a way. So I think, you know, the fact it's been acknowledged now as a research priority by AOSPI and Recode DCM, it's really important from a professional standpoint to get that awareness up there, both inside the DCM community. Obviously, that priority of raising awareness is going to help the profile of the condition to new new people. But I think, um, as Shirley alludes to, and I, and I know that our other co-founder, Mark Cotter, is, is, is working on this exact thing, is having some sort of template that perhaps can assess or, or help other healthcare professionals put forward the right bits of information that can really help their, their patients transition through this um, benefit-seeking phase as quickly as possible. So I think there are clearly some uncertainties there and just hopefully the, the process that we're going through, what's being done with myelopathy.org can really help shine a light on this, a multidisciplinary light if you like, and we'll start to clarify and really help support people through this through this process. So what's coming up next month? So next month we're talking to Dr. Rory Murphy, a spine surgeon from the Barrow Neurological Institute in the USA the world's largest dedicated hospital for neurological disease. And in particular, we're talking to him about his approach to DCM care, including efforts to produce an information resource for people with DCM. All that's left to be said is a thank you very much to Shirley Widdop for joining us. This was Myelopathy Matters from myelopathy.org. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. To keep up to date with the latest in the field of degenerative cervical myelopathy, why not subscribe on your favourite podcast app, where you'll also find all of our previous episodes. There's lots more information to be had about the condition and including the support, in particular for those seeking benefits at myelopathy.org. If you've got a question about myelopathy or an experience to share, we'd love to hear about it. Please get in touch at ben at myelopathy.org. But until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.